You're listening to Rick Flynn. With a shout out from London Town, it's Rick Flynn presents. Now, ladies and gentlemen, your MC for the affair, Rick Flynn. Well, hi, everyone, and welcome on into another exciting podcast today. This next gentleman I have known ever since, I believe it's either junior high school at the earliest or high school at the latest, but he was the very first ever record producer that I ever knew. And then he went on to be a newspaper columnist with Cincinnati's only commercial newspaper, our main paper in the city, which is the Cincinnati Inquirer, where Randy McNutt, I believe you made a lifelong career of that, didn't you? Well, yes, I I did it, uh, oh gosh, uh, 29 years. 29 years. I remember you had your own column there. Yeah, I was a columnist, uh, reporter, feature writer. I did about everything, including uh, copy clerk, the old uh, copy boy. Oh, that's uh, the old copy boy. (laughs) Yeah, 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 they used to call it that. Oh, that's great. uh, Yeah, I was doing uh, 29 to life in that place, but I finally... uh, finally escaped. Oh, I think that's marvelous. And what has the internet done to the newspaper industry, if you care to discuss it? But you can do it now because you're retired, aren't you? Uh, well, actually, I've laid no. off. And so since then, I've just been uh, continuing to write on my own and books. I've done quite a few of those since I left there in uh, the end of 2004. I kind of reinvented myself and got into the book scene, which I did a little bit before. Before I left, I was doing a few things. But after that, I had a lot of time to um, devote to just doing the books. And I've done all kinds, different topics. But, you know, I love the music thing, so I try to do a lot of that. Well, Randy, when you're our age and you're my age exactly, uh, did uh, we went to high school or did we go to Harding Junior High School together? Or well, both? Uh, you, I guess you went to Harding I, I went did. To, uh, yeah, I went to George Washington Junior High, and then we both went on to Garfield. Right? No, no, I didn't go to Garfield. I graduated from Taft. Oh, I'm sorry. That's right. Yeah, yeah, you were a West Side guy. <laughs> yes. Oh, my whole my whole time there. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. correct. So, where did I get an autographed? 45 of Wayne Perry with your signature on it to me because I still have it and I also have Little Flint and you (laughs) really I have that and I have Mr. Bus Driver autographed to me with your signature on it and I can't did you mail it to me I assumed you gave me and handed me the copy somewhere well somewhere at some time and I don't uh, know where you know, it could have been uh, could have been anywhere, but uh, yeah, I I didn't remember uh, signed a lot of stuff over the years, and I I didn't uh, remember, but I I'm sure we met at some place, met up, I did it or uh, whatever. But I always enjoy enjoy talking to you about the the music because you enjoy it a lot, and I know you're 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 a fan like me. Oh, absolutely, Randy. I can't tell you how many records that I've collected over the years, other than the fact that when I used to go to radio station WNOP, that was the jazz station there in the tubes on the Ohio River. 
sure, yeah. My collection, when I walked in there, exceeded what they had for the entire <laughs> radio station, and I'm dead serious. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I'd say I'd say you are. You're, you're serious about it, for sure. Right. Well, when you're a hot DJ, Randy, the record companies seek you out, and yeah. they make sure that not only do you have a copy to play where you work, but they want you to have a copy at home so you yeah. can listen to the record before you go to work. Yeah. And boy, I'll tell you what, I did that for so many years of my life. Those records were like your articles were to you. They all mean something. When you pull them out and look at them, you remember uh, where you got it, who gave it to you, where you heard, when you first heard it on the radio. Somehow those things stick in your mind. I can remember a number of records I heard on the radio. You know more about this than me, but uh, on that end of it, I was uh, driving down Route 747 north of Cincinnati and um, many years ago and I heard this record come on These Eyes by the Guess Who and as soon as that thing came on it just grabbed me and I I turned the thing up loud and uh, oh my gosh what a record that was and uh, I remember uh, just different records you know where I was when I first heard them uh, things that impressed me a lot you know and so that's kind of neat to have those memories uh, even though you know I don't have anything to do with a lot of these records but uh, they they imprint on your mind, your memory, and um, that's the way music is, I guess. I'll tell you what. How about the Guess Who was a Canadian band? Yeah. How about the lead singer? Was His name was Burton Cummings. Yeah, that guy was fantastic. Oh, he was wonderful. And by the way, I've seen him live, too, by oh, the you? way. Oh, yes, I did. And another one of his bandmates that started the Guess Who with him was a guy named Randy Bachman. That's right. I met him. I, got I met him. I that. met him. I interviewed him. Did you really? Years oh. ago. Back, years yeah, ago. years ago. I don't know if you remember it, but I was in your business too, Randy. I had a, well, what happened is when I went to Miami, I wrote for the local college paper, Rick Flynn's music scene column in the Miami uh, paper. Miami? It was Peck Edition. Oh, yeah, well, sure. You, you remember that. You were that. there when I was there. Yeah, well, I then remember. there, I'll bet you that's where I got the record. That's where you got it. Because you I physically do, do. handed it to me. I do. I, sh- I sure remember you from those days. I certainly do. That really brings back memories. Now, did and, you write for that same yep. paper that I did? Well, I sure did. That's where I got started. There. Thank you. Now we've solved it. Now solved let me explain it to the public. Miami of Ohio is the main campus in Oxford, but they also have one, two, three, three satellites, Middletown, Hamilton, and they've added one, I think, in Westchester, didn't they? Yeah. yeah. So at the time we went, Randy, they had two satellites. And yes. that means that if you lived in a community outside, of Oxford and you still wanted to go to Miami in Oxford, they would waive the you have to live here in a dorm requirement. If you didn't want to go and attend the main campus, you could go to the satellite and take what they called common core or common curriculum, which was English, 
history, literature, all this stuff that you have to take before you declare a major. And in my case, my declared major was radio and television. And then I transferred to the main campus and I graduated from the Oxford main campus after spending uh, five years there instead of four because it took me a little longer because I got more than one degree. So when I was at the branch writing Rick Flynn's music scene, the editor of the paper, and I can't remember the girl's name. She was a fellow student just like you and I. She submitted my feature column on what was an unknown individual. Nobody knew who he was. He didn't have a career at that time. He was Bette Midler's piano player, an unknown guy by the name of Barry Manilow. Oh, yeah. And she, without telling me, the editor of the paper sent the article away to the Ohio Regional Campus Newspapers Contest and darned if it didn't win first place in features. And she says, come in here. I've got something for you. And she hands me this certificate oh. where I had placed first. And oh, then Jim Blunt, uh, our teacher, said, bring that column. We'll take it for our paper. And he puts it in all of the papers that he was the editor for, you know, oh, all the really cool. yeah. right. And that's how I got into it. I got into it kind of by accident, but I'd always been a decent writer. But then after that, when college ended, I went on to broadcasting and becoming a DJ. And that's when I pursued radio, TV and music as a drummer as well to traveling for a while. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I've kind of done a little bit of everything. I had a taste of your business enough to make a portfolio, but I never did it, Randy, like you did as a living full-time for 29 years. I can't top that. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, I don't know. You know, it's just sometimes I look back on that and I think, I don't know how I, how I did it for so long. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'll tell you what. stamina, you know. <laughs> yeah, but getting back to what we were talking about with the Guess Who, many people out there, Randy, they know a song, and it's called Taking Care of Business. Yeah. That's the Bachman-Turner Overdrive. That's yep. Randy Bachman from the Guess Who that was Burton Cummings' partner, and he hooked up with a guy named Fred Turner. Yeah. That was Bachman and Turner. They did Taking Care of Business. They did Let It Ride. Try, try, try to let it ride. They yeah. did that. You ain't seen nothing yet. Remember oh, yeah. that? That's, going that's Fred Turner singing that. Oh, you ain't see yes, that's and he took some ribbing because of Pavarotti. He is not. <laughs> yeah. You know, baby, you know, you ain't yeah. seen n -n -n nothing yet. <laughs> that was yeah. that was before they had those digital stutterers, you know. <laughs> yeah. Like funny. if you want to stutter today, just go to the music store and buy a little box, a little plastic box. It'll do it for you, Randy. Yeah, yeah. The technology will let you stutter now. Boy, isn't that the truth. But Randy, you were the first. You handed me a <laughs> 45 of a guy who I already knew about, but I did not know that he had a record out until you handed me the record and it was on 45 and it was called Mr. Bus Driver and the guy's name was 
Wayne Perry, who used to go, we used to call him Little Wayne Perry because of his height. And every Saturday in Hamilton, Ohio, they had a program. I know you're familiar with it. It was called Open House Mm -hmm. at the YWCA. And in order to get in, you needed, uh, oh, I forgot, you needed a, a very small admission charge. I don't know if it was 50 cents, a quarter, I don't know what it was, but you had to abide by their rules and pay a, a very tiny admission. And they ran they ran a, a clean joint there. There was no nonsense going on. Mrs. Huftles, H-U-F-T-L-E-S, Mrs. Ruth Huftles ran the open house and the YWCA's gymnasium. And I'm telling you what, little Wayne Perry would go down there with a group called Wayne Perry and the Rockers. And I watched him sing. And this was a blue-eyed soul singer like James Brown. He would take that microphone and put it down on the floor when he dropped to his knees and say, that's how strong my love is. And he sang with elan. He sang with feeling. That little Wayne Perry, I'm telling you, Randy, he had what they called the blue-eyed soul. Now, is this correct or not? Oh, yeah. You got it right. You got it right. Oh, absolutely. Now, what... I know that you worked with him, but you had a job where the two of you worked together after high school. But what prompted you, other than a a basic interest that you both had in music, what prompted you to take that vision further and say, I want to produce Wayne Perry for record? Well, (laughs) that's an interesting I mean, did you say to yourself, I know I'm uh, nuts, I know I'm crazy, but I'm going to do it anyway? Well, actually, uh, it didn't happen that way. Um, When I I get out of high school, um, I I don't know how I got to this point, but I didn't know what I wanted to do, and um, it was, here I was, I was 17, and I thrust out of Garfield High School in Hamilton, Ohio. So my mother said, what is it you'd like to do? You know, I said, I don't know. I, I just don't know what I'd like to do, but I'd like to go to college, but I can't, you know, like we can't afford it. My dad was a, a milkman. Uh, my mother didn't work, uh, you know, back then, a lot of the, the women were home with the kids. And so, um, I don't know. I said, well, you know, I wouldn't mind being a barber. (laughs) She said, oh, you know, I don't know about that. And uh, I said, well, I really don't know. But she said, why don't you think about it? Meanwhile, she says, why don't you go where I went to the Butler Hamilton Business College up in downtown Hamilton? And I didn't know what to do. So they, my dad, took me up there and we enrolled and it was a family-owned business and um, and there I was me and about uh, 10 other guys and uh, about 200 girls so I took typing and business English and accounting which I was terrible I didn't know a debit from a credit when I got out of that place but I uh, had a lady teacher there that was uh, so nice to me and she passed me <laughs> but um, while I was when I got out of high school I really loved records. I mean, I was just crazy about 
about 45s and albums too. So I I somehow got the idea that I would like to make my own record. But I had no money and I was a kid, you know. So I just thought about it. It's something I wanted to do. I don't know why. It just popped in my head. So at the business college, I would, uh, at lunchtime, I would uh, bring my bag of uh, a peanut butter sandwich and uh, I would sit there and eat it. But every Monday, I would go across the street and there was uh, something called the newsstand, uh, or News Depot, I believe it was, something like that. And they had a lot of magazines and the small paperback books, uh, the kind they still have them, but they're not as many as they did back then. So I went in there one time and I saw this magazine, Billboard. I went over and I found that. And I found when it came out, it was on a Monday, every Monday at lunch. I'd walk across the street, I'd buy Billboard magazine, I'd bring it back to the business college and go through that, and I would comb that thing and read every word in it. And I learned about, um, oh, you know, the different records and where they're making them and oh, just everything about the business. I, at that time, had a good memory, so I could remember all these different artists, and, and people would say to me, hey... Um, did you hear this record, B.J. Thomas, Eyes of a New York Woman? And I said, yes, I have, on Sector Records, produced by Chips Moman, published by uh, Press Music. And so people would say, whoa, man, you know. So I, I had all these things in my head, and I kept doing this and buying it. It was tough. It cost a lot of money back then. It was 75 cents. Now, I didn't have much, and I rode the bus every day from my house up to downtown Hamilton. And uh, so I'd scrape together the money and I'd buy Billboard. I got the idea by reading this. I thought, hey, wait a minute. There are guys out there actually making records that don't know any more than I do about music as far as playing. I read more and I found out who they were. And so then um, at some point, I, I just decided this is what I want to do. I'm going to leave the business college and I'm going to get a job and I'm gonna save up the money and I'm going to make a record. That's the only reason I wanted to get a job. So I went up one day after school in downtown Hamilton and there was a state employment office. And at that time, you could go in there and say, hey, here I am, I'm on the job market. And they'd say, well, let's take all your information, see if we can match you up with some. So I filled out the form, gave it to somebody, and the lady said, you know what, you hold on a minute, I think there's something for you, but you got to talk to Mr. So-and-so. So he comes out and he said, uh, you're looking for a job. And I said, yeah. He said, well, I might have something for you. So he got on the phone and he says, uh, Harry, I think I got a guy for you. And Harry was Harry Deaton, who worked at the Mosler Safe Company. He was the head of quality control. They sent me over there and I was interviewed and bingo, got the job. Well, as I walked uh, the day that I was in the employment office, I left. It was light rain out there. And I walked out the door. Um, believe that was on Second Street, and I walked out the door and walked a few feet up the street, and just all of a sudden, this blue Valiant pulls up next to me, and my dad rolls the window down. And he had my mother with him, and he said, "Where are you going?" And I said, "Well, I was going to get the bus and go home." He says, "Well, come on, get in the car, and we'll go home." So I got in the back seat, and uh, my mother turned and said, "What are you doing in that employment office?" I said, "I'm going to get a job." My mother said, well, you're not, you've got to, you got to finish your schooling, you know? And I said, I will, I'll go at night, but I want to get a job. And my dad is driving and he's sighs about it and kind of turned his head a little towards me. And he said, why would you want 
to do that, you got your whole life to work. You can stay home with your mother and me and um, your sister, and you don't have to work, and you can finish your college, business college and get a job where you can actually wear a white shirt and a tie to work. This was a big deal to my dad because he had worked uh, on the milk route most of his life. So I said, he says, why? And I said, because I want to be a record producer. And his jaw hit the ground. He said, you want to be a what? And I said, I want to, I want to be a record producer. And my mom said, oh, no, no you're, you're not going to be serious here, are you? Why? You can't do that. And I said, well, uh, I want to do it. So I took the job. I wasn't making very much, um, but I got a nice little job as a, a clerk, and I'd go to the factory pick up orders that, that would go out of there every day telling what's been shipped, you know, and then I'd have to compile them all and give it to the plant manager and the VP at the end of the day. So one day, Mr. Deaton comes out and he said, let me see you in my office. He said, Randy, you've done such a nice job and we want to promote you. We think this job is something that's kind of, you know, it's not on your level. You can do better. So he said, we're going to promote you to something and I don't know what that'll be yet, but we're going to do it. He said, now, I want to get a replacement for you. He said, then that's not easy to do. We need a guy who can type. We don't want a woman doing it because she has to go through the factory and those guys might make comments to her. And he said, it gets hot out there. We don't, in those days, you know, they, that's the way things were. So he said, we're going to find somebody, but until then you keep doing your job. But he says, one thing, I'll get a guy that can type, but you have to promise me you will stay at least a month or possibly even six weeks to two months training this guy. He said, uh, you do a lot of stuff. It's going to take a lot of training. And I want to make sure when you're out of here that this guy doesn't make any mistakes because he's got to report at the end of the day to the vice president and tell him everything that's going out of the factory. So I said, okay. So one day I'm sitting at my desk and the door opens. Mr. Deaton comes in. He's got this little guy following him and the guy kind of struts along with this little cocky walk and he's got some clothes on that look like super mod. This would have been back about 1969, 70 maybe. Um, so I looked down and I thought, who in the world is this guy? It was uh, Wayne Perry. So I trained Wayne and we we're together all day long and um, and got to be friends. And in the evening, we'd get together and maybe go over to the mall and look for clothes and, you know, just hang out. So Wayne heard my story about what I want to do. And I, um, I knew that he performed, but I didn't know much about it. Um, and I didn't want any soul stuff. I wanted to do Top 40 Rock. And there was a band up in Oxford playing at the Boar's Head or one of those uh, places and where Miami University is. And I liked them. They were called the Jordan Parker Review from Dayton. I remember they had a dance floor, small one, and the, and the college kids would be dancing and uh, particularly a lot of girls dancing by themselves with how they do. So I was standing right at the edge of this dance floor and behind me, everybody was packed in there just watching the dancers in the band. I'm just standing there with a blank stare in my face uh, looking at the band all of a sudden this guy next to me reaches out and he he pinches a girl on the rear and she turned and thought it was me and slapped me in the face i should have known that that was an omen you know but i talked to the jordan park review and they said hey man we got a record deal we can't be with you haven't done anything so i got turned down by a few bands meanwhile wayne and i become pretty good friends and um one day we're leaving the office after work and we're walking up the street to the parking lot and i remember i said you know this is what i want to do i want to produce a record and, and i'll never forget it wayne turns to me and he says hey man why don't you produce me 
well, I didn't want to do it because I didn't want to do that kind of music. And I knew that he sang that type of stuff. I went to see him at this bar called the um, nightclub called the uh, Halfway Inn outside of Hamilton. I honestly have to tell you that I said yes because I didn't want to hurt his feelings. And after that, I regretted it. I thought, oh, man, I shouldn't have done that, you know. And But uh, we got into this, and I learned a lot about music from Wayne, and he learned a lot about the business from me. So I found a song, Mr. Bus Driver. And the guy that wrote it, his name was Wayne Carson Thompson. And I just loved that guy's songs. Uh, and, I, and I found this Mr. Bus Driver song that he did. And I called his publisher out in Springfield, Missouri, and I told him I was going to record it. There was a guy there named Cy Simon that ran that little publishing company, and um, he had done work with the Louisiana Hayride and different things, and he was now he managed the publishing company. And he was all excited. He said, that's great, you know, and he was encouraging. So I gave the song to Wayne, and Wayne said, well, what I want to do is I want to do some stacks record song. Uh, something is wrong with my baby or something. And I said, Wayne, Let's put it this way. The guy that did that record tore it up. And, you know, he's got the definitive version. He's black. You're white. What makes you think you can come in and do it better than he can? And Wayne just looked at me and said, oh, I never thought of that. And I said, but I got a song for you. So I played a Mr. Bus Driver, and he liked it. And it had been out once before, but didn't do much. And um, so we did it in a completely different version than the original, which was by a guy named Bruce Chanel, who'd had a record called Hey Baby some years earlier. So we used Wayne's band. He was playing up at the halfway, and they had a band called, the, or he was in a band called The Young Breed, and it was led by a guy named Bill Jones, and Bill was a bass player, and he had played with Lonnie Mack and um, different bands. Bill was a little bit older at that time than us. Wayne and I were 20 and something like that. So Bill knew what he was doing, and Wayne said, let's use this band on there as our rhythm group. So I had $500 and uh, I paid these guys and uh, they practiced and they came down. Uh, they got it down. You know, the organist, his name was uh, Wayne Bullock and Wayne had played with uh, Lonnie Mack, the great uh, blues rock guitarist. And uh, Wayne had been his bass player and they had traveled all over the country. You know, at the time, uh, hey, I'm pretty young. I don't know that much about that stuff. Uh, so I thought, oh, you know, Wayne Bullock and these guys, I didn't know them. So we got a studio. Uh, there was a studio down on Mount Healthy, a, a suburb of Cincinnati. A guy named Rusty York owned it. And Rusty had been uh, in country music, and he was a rockabilly. He had a record called Sugary years earlier. And I didn't know Rusty. I didn't know anybody. And I, I booked time. I got the band. They, went, they played at the halfway uh, one night. They got off work. We all went down to Jewel Studios. We cut the rhythm track to Mr. Bustrow. And those guys had it down. When they got there, I think we, we probably had about four takes, and we had it. So Wayne, he sang it that night with them. And we had, uh, so we had the thing basically, you know, the basics of it done. And then later, we had, a, we had to get some horns. So Wayne knew all the local musicians. He knew the guy that guys that played over at King Records, and he knew all the bands. He knew who the best players were, all the all the uh, blue-eyed soul players and uh, everybody. So Wayne says, well, there's there's a couple of guys, uh, Terry Burnside, sax player, and, um, and Craig Shanafeld, another guy, and they played uh, in all kinds of bands. I think they were, they did some work with the, with the Daps, which is 
kind of a legendary early funk band. So we brought them in at a later date, dubbed on the horns, and we needed some background vocals, and we wanted to get uh, some soul vocals. So Rusty said, hey, I know um, three um, young black women. They, they're great. They'll do it. So we brought them in. That just didn't work. I don't know. It didn't. So oddly enough, uh, I go back to the Jordan Parker Review, and I said, you know, I'll pay if you guys come in and sing the background, which wasn't really uh, a major part of the record, but it was there in the background. So they did it, and bingo, we had Mr. Bus Driver uh, written by Wayne Carson Thompson. Now, Wayne Carson Thompson had written a big hit song by the Box Tops called The Letter. A few years later, Joe Cocker cut it and made it a hit again. I started looking over the songs that uh, Wayne Thompson had done, and my goodness, they were, they, they were you know, he had some really good credits, and he, you know, really loved the stuff. He wrote a hit by the uh, group called John and Robin and the In Crowd from down in um, Dallas. It was called Do It Again, Just a Little Bit Slower. It was a cute little, little song. And uh, so anyway, Wayne, Wayne and I had this record, and uh, we shot the budget. I spent all my money. So Wayne said, I know this group, and, you know, if they could get a record, you know, playing a record, they'd do it for free. I don't remember who they were. And we did the we did the B-side there at Rusty's, and Rusty said, uh, well, you could cut your budget down if you do it on a four-track. He said, that's paid off. But he said, my eight-track that you used isn't not making payments on it. So so we brought him in, we did it on a Ford track, and the song was called Gimme the Green Light. <laughs> and at the time I was big into top forty, bubblegum and all that, you know, so I wrote the lyrics. It's kinda of got a bubblegum lyric with a soul <laughs> soul melody. So Wayne now at the time I was working at Mosler with Wayne. So we'd meet down in the uh, in the mail room and uh, nobody would came in there much and so we'd we'd stand there and talk about all our plans and what we're gonna do. Then at lunch we'd get in uh, my Carmen Gia and we'd drive up to uh, Hyde's drive in and we'd get some hamburgers and talk about it and usually come back late. Um but anyway, um Wayne came I was working out in a factory at on my new job and um uh, it was I was an office worker in this little room. It had two rooms, a small thing, right in the middle of the factory. Wayne came in, and uh, I said, okay, now, here's my lyrics. we got to have a B-side. So Wayne didn't have any instrument, and he just reads my lyrics, and he starts uh, coming up with something off the top of his head, like, you know, come on, baby, give me the green light, turning me on and on, and all this stuff. So basically, we had a melody, which kind of wasn't a melody, but you know, we knew what it was. So I said, can you remember that? He said, yeah. So after work, we head over to his house, and uh, we recorded it you know, with him singing on a little cassette. And so we had our B-side, and we cut it with this group, and it had horns, and it sounded pretty good. So we had a 45. After that, I had heard about Fraternity Records down in Cincinnati because they had Lonnie Mack and had a couple big hits by him with Memphis and Wham when I was in high school. And um, they had some other things. Uh, then you could tell me goodbye by the casinos. And uh, prior to that, they had some hits back in the 50s. So, you know, maybe that's what I need, an independent label. So I get on the phone and I call them and a guy owned it by the name of Harry Carlson. And Harry was probably at that time, oh gosh, I don't know, late 50s, 60, I don't know. And Harry wasn't into rock too much, but he put some of those records out. He said, well, I'll tell you what, why don't you come down to my suite at the Sheridan Gibson in downtown Cincinnati where he and his wife Louise lived. So after work one night, Wayne and I go down. They invited us in and, and Harry was fraternity record. He didn't have any office staff. All he had was a desk and a telephone, and an old 
reel-to-reel tape recorder, and that's how he operated. He got on that phone, he'd call DJs all over the country. He knew them. He knew their families. He knew everything about them. And they would play records for Harry as a favor a lot of times. So Harry, um, he takes our reel-to-reel tape, and he carefully puts it on the recorder. And at the beginning, we had we had dubbed on a bus. And so the bus comes on, and it goes, and then the bass comes in, and then the horns. And so Harry listens to that, and I can see his eyes kind of get big. So he plays it all the way through, about a little less than three minutes. Then he doesn't say anything. He rewinds it, and he plays the whole thing again. And he didn't say anything. Wayne and I are getting nervous. So then he uh, rewound, and he played it again. And, if, and I'll imitate Harry here. He said, boys... It's a stone smash, just like this. And Wayne and I just dropped our jaws, you know. We, we thought we'd hit the big time, you know. This label had some hits they're going to put on Mr. Buster. So on the spot, Harry signs Wayne to an artist contract, and he signed both of us to a production contract to do the record. Then he signed both of us to his Buckeye Music for the publishing. So we're all hot about it. He says, I'm going to send in, I'm going to, I'm going to make up uh, a purchase order. I'll send it in to uh, the pressing plant. Well, about three weeks later, I get a call at work at Mosler. Harry says, uh, Randy, I'm so sorry to tell you this. I can't put your record out. He says, I'm embarrassed. I can't do it. He said, somebody else has come out with the same song. Now, we didn't have the rights to the song, so anybody could cut it. Um, and some guy named Neil Dover from Chattanooga come out with it, and they got up to about 99 on the Record World chart, which was another of the trade magazines. Harry said, I don't think it's legitimate. He said that the editor is a good friend, Diamond Records uh, owner, and he said, uh, I think they just stuck it on there to see if it would do anything. I don't know if that was the case, but it fell off the chart. But still, Harry said, I can't afford to get in a, in a, a battle with Diamond Records. They got more money than I do. So we were without a label. So... I took it down to Nashville uh, by myself. I was going to go around Music Row trying to play it, and I woke up the next morning, snow all over the place. It freaked them out down there. Nobody, They weren't used to the snow. Uh, I could hardly walk. It was so slick. I just turned around and came home. So I was despondent about it. And um, then in Billboard, I, I'd seen something about um, a label called Klondike, I believe it was, and they were owned by Holiday Inn. And the great Sam Phillips, who that had Sun Records at one time and did, you know, all the early acts like Carl Perkins and Jerry Lee Lewis. He was an investor in Holiday Inn, and so he owned a little bit of this label. So I called down there. I got the uh, president of the label, and I told him what I had, and he said, I'll listen to it. Well, Wayne and I, in our excitement, somehow scraped the money together, and we fly down there. So we had an appointment for Monday morning at nine o'clock or something. So we had no money. So that night we had a, a uh, motel room near the airport. We couldn't go anywhere. We couldn't go out to eat even with any money. So we sat there and they, we had a room. And uh, so we sat there uh, propped up on the bed there eating uh, potato chips or something. And the only thing on TV I still remember was the movie The Robe. And we just sat there and watched that. And that was our night. So in the morning we got up early. We we're all excited. So I went down to the front desk. And I said, I want to get a taxi cab, take us downtown. So there was a list of them, and I called, and they said, we'll be over. But they didn't come. They didn't come, and we were getting really nervous. And pretty soon, it's like quarter to nine, and they're not there yet. So I said to the guy at the desk, um, you know, what are we going to do about this? He goes, oh, my gosh, you didn't call that taxi company, did you? They're notoriously late. So they finally pull up, and we get down there, and we go into that office. 
and we get there maybe 45 minutes late. And the secretary says, um, I'm sorry, boys, but um, uh, Mr. Cunningham, B.B. Uh, Cunningham, he was the father of one of the guys in the box tops group. And uh, he said, he's been called up to upstairs at the board of directors meeting. If you want to wait, when he comes back, I'm sure he'll talk to you because he's got an appointment. So sure enough, he comes back and he had a very disturbed look on his face. He goes, well, come on in. So he played the record. He played the tape. And he said, uh, I like that. I like that boys. Everybody could call us boys because we look like we're about 16. He said, you know, I really like that. So he called some guy in and that guy listened to it. He said, yeah, it's good, but we don't want that BB. He said, you know, you're going to get fired. They just told you if you don't improve and get a hit, they're going to fire you. He said, we need some soul stuff. And BB said, well, Randy, I'll make a decision. And I'll call you next week, and I'll tell you, because we're going to have to debate this here. So the days go by, and um, Monday morning I go get Billboard, and there it was, B.B. Cunningham fired. So that shot that down. So <laughs> we finally, to make a long story short, uh, I get a call from Rusty York at the studio. He said, there was a guy in here, some independent producer, <clears throat> and that's what Really, Wayne and I were independent producers. He said he's from New York, and he was doing some overdubs here. And he said, I said to the guy, you want to hear the best thing ever cut out of this studio? And the guy said, yeah. So he said, I played a Mr. Bustruck. And uh, the guy said, well, you know, I might be able to help those guys. Have them give me a call. So I called the guy. I still remember from a phone booth. Uh, he always played the role quite a bit and he says, Well man, I don't know. I'm you know, I don't know if I can help you and but I'll try. You wanna come down to my apartment and he lived in a carriage house across the street from Eden Park and um, we went there and he played it. He liked it. And he said, Well, I'll see what I can do. He said, A friend of mine is um he's going to New York and he's gonna take some some tapes to pitch it to labels. And he might take it if he likes it. He might take it and pitch it for you. So I didn't know this guy, who who he was. So later I find out his name's Herman Griffin, and Herman was the first artist on Motown record. He was married to Mary Wells and had my guy at one time. So Herman had gotten off that label, and he had made, he's a singer, he had made records for Columbia and different labels, quite a few, probably been on half a dozen labels. And um, so Herman was producing independent stuff, and I didn't know it, but at the time he had a record out that was up on the Billboard charts uh, probably in the 30s um, called How About a Little Hand for the Boys in the Band. So Herman, I met him, and he said, yeah, I'm going to take it up. So one evening I'm sitting there eating with my sister and my mom and my dad, and phone rings. My mom picks it up, says, hello. It was on the wall right next to her. And she looks at me with a weird look, and she said, it's for you. And it was Herman, and uh, he had a deep, deep voice, and uh, he says, uh, hey, is Randy there? And she said, uh, yeah. So he puts on, he said, Randy, baby, I got you a deal. I said, wow. He said, yeah. He said, I took it to Polydor. And then he starts listing about five labels that were all pretty good size. I said, wow, you, you gave it to Polydor, didn't you? No, I didn't. He said, I went with Abco Embassy. He said, and uh, they were independent label that had the stylistics at one time and all this. So he said, they need a hit bad. And he said, they, um, he said, so I gave it to them because they say they'd give me a little more front money. And he said, so we, um, he said, they're going to put it out. He said, going to be in the fall. They're going to put it out. This is probably spring. So we went over and signed this contract it must have been about eight inches thick the next thing i know i get a check for two grand now 
back then, two grand was, you know, probably worth <laughs> 10 now or 15, who knows? It was a lot of money. And I took that check and I came up to my dad and I said, hey, look at this. And he just about passed out. So Herman, um, he was busy doing his stuff. And meanwhile, our record didn't come out. So one day at Mosler, I call up there and I get, uh, the, it was run by Luigi Creatore and uh, Hugo Peretti. They had produced hit after hit by Perry Como and all these different big pop stars. And they got this gig over at Avco Embassy running that label. So I don't know who it was. I guess it was uh, Hugo answers the phone. And I told him who I was. I said, I'm just wondering, you know, you're going to put the record out. He goes, you know what? We put it on hold. He said, we think we're going to go all soul. And uh, and I said, well, our record sounds soul. He said, yeah, but it's not, you know. He said, so um, I don't know if we'll put it out, but we might eventually. I don't know. He said, why? You want to buy it back? And I said, uh, he goes, no, don't tell me, kid. You spent the money. I said, well, yeah. <laughs> I made other records with it. Uh, so after that, um, I take it to a, a regional label in Cincinnati counterpart. They had a bunch of hits, regional hits. So the guy really loved uh He said, I'm going to put it out. I'm going to put it out. I'm going to do it fast. I said, wait a minute. I don't want to get sued by those guys. And uh, he goes, you won't? He said, I'll tell you what. If this is a regional hit, they'll get down on their knees and thank you and me because they'll have something they know is hot and, they, and it's been market tested and they'll put it out. So I said, okay. So he put the thing out. It got some play, but at that time, radio was starting to not play local labels. They were getting away from that. So we had trouble getting play. But I still remember when Wayne and I heard this record for the first time. We're driving not far from my house. I I was driving at a 64 Plymouth Valiant. I was driving this car and uh, Wayne was sitting next to me. And Wayne turns the radio on and uh, on I forget the I think it was WMOH in Hamilton. And this uh, DJ there, Bob Mr. Movin Patton, he's he says, Now we got a new record from a local guy named Wayne Perry and all of a sudden that bus comes on and Wayne starts going nuts, pounding the dashboard with his fist and b- bouncing up and down on the seat. And I start going, oh my gosh, and they're playing the record. I'm driving meanwhile, and Wayne turns to me and takes his arms and grabs me and starts hugging me and popping up and down, you know, and I'm weaving on the street. And uh, so I hurried up and pulled over right on the street, and uh, we listened to that record, and we're yelling and screaming, and uh, it nothing like hearing the record for the first time and uh, so we were really got a high on that one and uh, and that's the saga of Mr. Bus Driver and how it was done but those guys looking back on it the guys that played on that were really top notch blues rock players from here the guys that were the Cincinnati Sound uh, Lonnie Mack and that group you know he had all these players and looking back on it we couldn't have done any better than to have these guys that I didn't know of at the time but we you know we I got lucky and Wayne knew them and they were in the same group so bingo um, it was a pretty tight track everybody that I took it to really liked the musicianship and all that so we had that record out and that is the story of the record I gave you at uh the Hamilton campus of Miami University, probably about uh, 1971 or so. Well, so, I graduated right. high school in 71, so okay. it had to be a little bit after that. 72, probably. Yeah, I'd go with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that'd be about it because um, it took a little while for it to come out, and then I had I had copies, and I'd give them to friends, you know, and stuff like that. Yeah, that. Uh, 
that was my experience, my first record. And, it, you know, at that time, Rick, there were independent producers all over the place. You know, every every major city had them, craw- they were crawling all over town. Medium cities like Cincinnati, they had a lot of them. And even uh, smaller cities had them. I mean, they were just all over the place. Uh, they were like, you know, beetles in the, in the summertime. So they, um, uh, it was totally different than it is today. There are independent producers. Mainly, they're, they're more big time. They got connections. And uh, back then, people like me, I had no connections, no money. I just had a will to do it, you know, desire to, to do it. And Wayne was the same. So we decided, you know, this is kind of cool. Maybe we should both be have a little production team. So we called it PM Productions. We picked up steam. You know, I had I had this money. And uh, so we thought, oh, my gosh, we could go wild with this. And Wayne was married at that time and had a son and just was born. And uh, so he had no money. But I had this this check. So we took it out and uh, went back to Rusty's. I found a song called Pain. And I'm not sure where I found it, but I think it was on a Grassroots album. And this would have been around, uh, this was 72, I think. And so you you got probably the, the, the copy. I probably gave you both of them. 72 or three, something like that, uh, that it was out. But Wayne, I played the song. It was a, it was a very you know, it was a major rocker. I mean, it was like really, really a, a a fast driving thing. And so Wayne had some ideas and he said, yeah, I can sing that, you know? So we got some guys together, um, who were more these blues rockers. They were like a pool of guys around here that were in, they float from band to band, like Wayne Bullock and, and, uh, and all of them. And, you know, at the time I, I had been into very top 40 rock. I didn't know about all these blues rockers and that how good they were. So we sat down and Wayne said, I'd like to use, I'd let Wayne pick the, the players unless I had an objection. He let me pick the song. So we had, he had his thing, I had mine, and I knew about the business, so it was my responsibility to try to get it placed and all that. So we made a good team. He taught me about the players and I taught him about songs and the business and what's commercial in a song and what's not. So we had this, uh, I had this song, you know, called Pain. And the on the album, it credited the writer as B period, man, M-A-N-N. At first I thought, Barry Man, the big time songwriter, nah, you wouldn't do this kind of thing. I thought, you know, that's probably this guy named Bob Man up in New York who's a studio musician. And I don't know, I think I found that out later. But we, we took it to Jewel. And we cut it with these guys. We had some really good players on there. The guy, the drummer, his name escapes me, but he had played with many, many really good bands around here. Um, the uh, guitarist was Gary Boston, who did the same. He was in a bunch of good bands, still around, still doing stuff. And um, played over at King Records on sessions. And uh, the bass player, Wayne Gottam, this guy was unbelievable. His name was, uh, he was from Cincinnati, Roger uh, Troy. His nickname was Jelly Roll. And at that time, he had a group called Jelly Roll. They were on Cap Records out of New York. And I had just gotten their album, and I thought, oh, that's pretty cool. We got this guy. And he had been in the Daps, I believe, at one time. And all these years later, the Daps are still kind of a cult band. You know I mean? They're still talked about because they came up with some of the early white funk because James Brown produced them. But anyhow, um, we uh, we had some some really good players there, and, and we cut that thing. Wayne sang it. 
we brought some horn players in, I think probably the same guys that we use, and um, bingo, we got a record called Pain. I had something that Wayne and I had produced for another group, and we hadn't done anything with it. Uh, it was an A-side called Gonna Have a Good Time. We had a guy in there sang lead named Rick Powell. He was a kid. He was like a drummer, really good. He was 17. So we had him on that, and then Pain on the other side. And if you'll look at your record, it'll have both of those songs. But I said to Wayne, do you want your name on this? What are we going to do about it? No. He says, I got an idea for a band. Why don't you call it Little Flint? So we we came out with the single, and I put it on my label. I started a little label called Beast Records. And it had a logo of a, a big ape on the top of a um, Empire State Building throwing a paper airplane. And a friend of mine at Miami do it and uh, so anyhow we we put the pain record out but i was going to by then i quit most or i was going to miami full time i didn't have time to do anything with this so we just it just sort of you know was there in the boxes we didn't so during the recording of this i'll never forget it there was a guy this roger Tory guy he he was playing and some guy we didn't know pops his head into the studio and says hey anybody in here own that that cool looking uh Camaro out in front, and uh, Jelly Roll says, proudly, yeah, I do. He says, well, I got to tell you, it's just been repossessed. <laughs> so we were, <laughs> yeah. So we, uh, you know, I still remember that from that session, but how it, how this got out of my label was um, I went over to see Wayne one day, and Wayne, his dad worked at General Electric, but he got laid off a lot, and then they called him back. So he started an upholstery shop behind their house. I said, uh, Mr. Perry, is Wayne around? He goes, no, I don't know where he is. You know, he said, he's out doing something. He said, um, he should be in here working with me. And uh, so I, I said, well, okay. I just, he says, what do you want? I said, I wanted to talk to him about our new song. And he said, you know, you guys need to put that out. He said, I think that'd really give Wayne a boost. Uh, he said, uh, Randy, he said, you know, Wayne needs... Wayne needs friends like you. You're you're a good boy. He said, uh, "What? Uh, how much it cost to put that out to press it?" And I said, "Well, I don't know about three hundred dollars." So he wrote the check on the spot, and uh, I took it down to uh, Shadow Shea, the guy that I knew that had the counterpart label that put out Mister Buster. And I said, "You know, I want to put this out on my label." He says, "Would you like me to distribute Beast Records through Counterpart?" And I said, "Yeah, that'd be great." So he. You know, I paid him. He did got the pressing job going, and and uh, so he he said, "Now you." When I got the records, he says, "You take uh, uh, take a couple of those over to this guy at A One Distributors downtown," and uh, he said, "Tell him Shad sent you, and that I'm distributing your label and put the records in there." And so I, it's in the rain, and I take two boxes of of these records. Uh, they weren't huge boxes, but I had to put them under my arms, and I hauled them in there, and I said, uh, you know, hi, I'm, I got this label, and Shad's going to distribute it. And, I, and the guy said, oh, yeah. Uh, he says, what are you doing with those records? I said, well, Shad said to bring a couple of them in here, and here they are. And he goes, hey, kid, he meant two records, not two boxes. He said, what do you think I'm going to do with two boxes? <laughs> so I gave him a couple of the records, took the rest of them back, took them to my mom's house where I was living, and took them down on a workbench on, on, in the basement, and that's where they remained for, well, let's see, from 1973 or so to 
to approximately, uh, oh gosh, 40 years, something like that. They stayed down there. You know, I'd been married and everything, and I just left them there. Mom had said from time to time, why don't you get rid of these? Nobody wants them. Why don't you just keep a couple? I said, no, I don't want to throw them away because I had about 500 of them. So I started getting calls from people in England. And they would say, hey, uh, do you have any copies of that? I said, well, yeah, actually, I do. And they ordered 25, and another guy would order 25. So, you know, I sold maybe 100 of them. I thought, I wonder what they want that for, and how would they pick, how would they know that it exists? So somehow, somebody at some point gave one to somebody who sold one, apparently, to somebody in England, a collector, and that guy must have got it in the hands of a of a DJ, and that's how the that's how it got. No, well, it started picking up slowly, picking up a little steam. Let's see. This year, forty seven years later, um, at the end of last year, actually, I got the call from a guy from England, and he had a label, and he said, "Do you are you the guy that produced Pain by Little Flint?" And I said, "Yeah." He said, "I'd like to put that out over here." Um, as a 45 on my label. He said, you know, it's it's in a bunch of the clubs. He said, the club DJs are playing it and the crowds love it. I said, you got to be kidding. He said, uh, no. I said, let me ask you now. I said, do you, do you do know, don't you, that this record is 47 years old? I said, are you that old? Uh-uh. <laughs> I said, he said, that doesn't matter. It sounds contemporary. We, uh, you know, I made a deal. I had earlier had a CD out with a label in New York to, of all my old stuff that I did in the 70s with Wayne, and it was called Sold Out uh, Cincinnati Soul Rockers of the 70s. And the guy that I, I placed this with technically had the rights that he leased it from me, so the guy had to give permission to put this out. And he finally did, and the record came out over there, and uh, in three days, the entire pressing sold out. And so somebody, so this guy said, get on YouTube, take a look, man. He said, you're all over YouTube. So I looked at sure enough, you know, it's all over there. And so that happened this year, 47 years later. That's how your record that you have in your collection has what happened to it. That's amazing. Now you mentioned uh, a guy by the name of uh, Herman Griffin. Herman became a really good friend of mine. Yeah. He was the producer of Mr. Bus Driver, did I hear you no, say? Uh, no, no. Actually, Herman is the guy who who uh, got Mr. Bus Driver uh, placed with Avco Embassy Records. Oh, in New he York was a, like a promoter. He, uh, he was a record producer, but he knew, he could get through the door that I couldn't because I didn't know anybody. But they all knew Herman because he had been on a bunch of labels as a singer and producer. And so... Herman get on the phone and he'd call these guys in New York A and R men, and they'd say, "Yeah, bring it on over, Herman." And Herman, you know, if he had something, he'd play it for him. Herman knew a lot of people. He could just get on the phone and call them, and he'd take it over. So he said, "I'm going to New York. I got stuff to try to get placed myself." So he said, "I'll take yours." He said, "If I get time, I'll pitch it to somebody." So sure enough, he took it around to you know quite a few labels when he took his stuff around. They were interested in it, and he went with Amco Embassy. Well, but now, in my era, we called men like him promo men. Well, in a way, he was. He didn't promote the radio, but he was an independent producer that would go pitch his songs to A&R departments at labels. Oh, for creation. Right, right. Ah, okay. And, yeah, in my yeah. era, they promoted the radio. Yeah. And uh, he wasn't a radio promotion guy, but he was an independent producer that could get in the door, pitch his, his uh 
his masters to these uh, A&R guys, and he knew a bunch of them. Now, Herman was a, a real, you know, Herman and I got to be friends, um, despite our many, many differences, uh, uh, not arguments, but he was so different than, than me. He was older. I'm white. He was black. He was really into a soul thing. And, and at that time, I was just starting to get into some of that. And Herman and I kind of hit it off, you know? I mean, I miss him. He's passed away, um, I don't know, 20, 30 years, 25 years ago. Herman was really good to me. I just really loved Herman. And, you know, he told me a lot about himself by not even telling me. He placed Mr. Bus Driver and didn't take a penny. And he also did not insist that his name go on there. It said produced by Randy McNutt and Wayne Perry. And most people that would have done that would have said, now, I want my name on it, too, produced by, you know, me and you, too, you know. But um, he didn't. He never asked. He never asked for a penny. So um, I, at that time, I asked him, you know, so I said, I'll give you something for this, but he wouldn't take it. Herman, uh, interesting little side thing on pain. He, um, we got to know each other. And uh, one day, Herman Herman lived down in uh, the North Side neighborhood, North Cincinnati, in in Cincinnati, but a northern part of the city. And uh, he had a little in a subdivision, kind of a little post World War II little house there. And so I go down there, and um, just me, my my girlfriend then, who my wife now. So Herman and his wife was Gigi, who was in this group, Gigi and the Charmaines, and they sang back up to tons of records at King, and they were on Fraternity, they were on Columbia, they were on various labels they had records on. Uh, so anyway, um, we're sitting there just shooting the breeze, and uh, you know, he just wanted to visit, and uh, so we're, we're talking, and he said, well, thanks, Randy, for coming down, and you know, he said, Gigi, go get the scrapbook. Randy'd like to see that. So he brings this scrapbook out. It's real thick, or she brings it out, and and uh, so I go over and sit on the sofa with him, and he starts paging through it, and my jaw hit the ground. I mean, there was Herman with the Beatles and Mary Wells and uh, all these big, big acts in the U.S. and U.K., I mean, years ago. and Because um, he had been married to Mary Wells, but I don't think too long. Mary Wells is the one that had uh, my guy, remember that? Right. Um, she was a solo act, and um, after that, she went to 20th Century Records and uh, some other labels. But I'm looking through this scrapbook, and uh, dropping my jaw, I'm seeing Herman with the Beatles and all these other things. And I said, man, what is this? He said, well, you know, Mary was on tour over there, and she was um, she was the headliner on a lot of these shows, you know. With the and, Beatles? Yeah, yeah. The Beatles were just becoming, that they were getting known over there somewhat. They were the warm-up act for Mary Wells singing My Guy. Uh, yeah, and some of her other things that she had done back there. And this wasn't unusual, because the Beatles were not what we think of as the, you know, the Beatles, the icons of everything, uh, because they hadn't hit it big yet. They were just kind of percolating, just getting ready to, to come up, and so they were big enough to get on the on the tour uh, over the uh, over England. And there were others on the, you know, maybe five different acts on one uh, tour. So I'm looking at all this. Uh, he was, you know, had his picture with all these other groups that were known, you know, in, in the, this country and over there. So uh, Herman says to me, you know, I'm putting together an album for the boys in the band. He said, I've got about five 
or six tracks, and I need some stuff to fill it out. He said, can I use your pain thing in on there as the boys in the band? I said, sure. He said, well, we need a couple other tracks. And uh, he said, you know, I'd like to record or something new because I don't have anything. I said, well, why don't we do it? So Wayne and I and Herman go into the studio and and, and cut uh, something. Actually, the way it was, Wayne and I went and we cut two things. Uh, Wayne had written both of them. And we did it down in northern Kentucky, a studio called The Forum that had done a big hit called Kiss You All Over by Exile. So we go in there and we do the two songs, but we hadn't finished the one. And it was the the real fast driving thing. And so Herman came in then and helped Wayne and I produce the record, the rest of the record, which put the horns on, the background vocals, and Herman provided the background vocals with Gigi and I guess the Charmaines came in. And so we got it all done. It's called Get Em While They're Hot. <laughs> so he used the Get Em While They're Hot and this other track we had cut to fill out his album for the boys in the band. So he takes it to New York to pitch it. But at that time, a recession hit pretty bad. And all the labels were cutting back, so they didn't... Um, that album never materialized, even though the boys in the band had been on the charts uh, two or three times, particularly in the R&B chart, but on, on the pop chart a little bit, too. That didn't turn out. Herman, I got the experience of recording with Herman, uh, and it was an experience, you know, I mean, because he was an independent producer, and he's done a lot. But I thought, man, I'm going to learn something from Herman. You know, I, I can't wait to do it. So we're in the studio. I think it took the tape over to Jewel and uh, Mount Healthy. We were going to put the vocals on, the background vocals overdub some guitar work, put the horns on. So we're, we're sitting in the uh, control room, and uh, Wayne and I and the engineer. So at the other end of the, of the studio, there was a door, and the door opened. Herman comes in. He's walking. He's got these two two women behind him, and one has something like a Look like kind of like a mink stole or something, you know, wrapped around her. She's carrying a, uh, a portable TV. And the next one that comes in, she's carrying like a bottle of, I don't know, gin or something. So they came in the studio <laughs> into the control room. I said, hey, Herman, man, what you got a TV for? He goes, man, this is a World Series. And so he set that thing up and turned the World Series on. So the women there, they went out and did their vocals. And Herman's like glancing over at this World Series all the time, you know, and he doesn't say too much. So we, you know, he just said, go out and do that. So we're sitting there and, you know, we're just kind of watching Herman, you know, and it was, it was a very interesting uh, session. Then we got it done and we mixed it and all three worked on it. The, the rest of the the uh, length of the the duration of the production, we worked on it together, and uh, and we at that time when that thing kind of crashed with the economy, get them while they're hot didn't didn't come out. But uh, the uh, I put that on my album, my CD that came out a few years ago. Meanwhile, I was telling you about that pain record. Another weird thing was I found out later that the the guy that wrote it was not really Bob Mann. It was a guy named Brian Mann who lived down in North Carolina, and he had a group called Nova's Nine. They had a single out on ABC Records, uh, and it was pain, and it didn't do anything. And then the Grassroots cut it, and it was on an album, but didn't. I don't think it ever became a single. And that's where I heard it. But about five other groups cut this pain uh, song, but none of them did anything. And I saw an interview on the internet with Brian Mann, and he's saying, you know, I was only 17, and I was too young to sign a contract, 
So my dad said, I'll sign it for you. And that's how Bob Mann got his name on it. But really, Brian Mann wrote it. He said, that was only the second song I'd ever written, and it took me 15 minutes. So we... uh, it was it was an odd story on the evolution of this pain record. That's absolutely amazing. We are with Randy McNutt. He is a record producer. He's the first record producer I ever met in my life. I later developed a whole career in show business and music and worked with uh, many people that and still do that have recorded records but until i met randy not only did i not know any record producers but he handed me a couple 45 rpm records both of which featured a young man on there that had never recorded a record before his name was wayne perry and he was a local boy from the same town where Randy and I grew up. I'm, of course, from Pittsburgh, but we moved to Ohio when I was age nine. So in my heart, I feel like I'm an Ohio boy, despite the fact that I do have Pittsburgh roots for the first nine years of my life. And at any rate, this young man, Wayne Perry, he was born in 1950. He's no longer with us because he passed away of cancer in 2005 which is 15 years ago. But the amazing thing is that with the experience that you and your partner Wayne Perry had, Randy, you must have affected that man and his life so much because what was to happen to him later was phenomenal. It was. It and, was amazing what happened to Wayne Perry. Interesting you bring this up. I would I would be I get talking about it, I'd be remiss not to say that Wayne went on to write five number one country hits and many, many chart records uh, down in Nashville, became really one of the top writers for, for a while down there. But Wayne and I were very, very good friends and stayed in touch the whole time. Wayne went on his path as a strictly a writer, but he would go in the studio and produce demos, and then he would just give it to his publisher, and then he they would place it with various artists. But he had five number one uh, songs that he wrote. Uh, Wayne was terrific in the studio. He just had a sense of putting together something like that that was just uncanny. But to go back a little bit, back into the mid-70s, I said to Wayne, Wayne, you have got to start writing your own material because I can't keep coming up with songs for you. You're going to have to write them. And he said, okay. So he he tried it. And I remember I was, uh, you know, this would have been uh, 73 or so. And I, I remember I was uh, over living at my mom's and uh, uh, she opened the door and said, you know, Randy Wayne's here. So he comes running in. He goes, I wrote my song just like you told me. So he sat down and played a song for me with, on the guitar called Just a Matter of Time. And I liked it. And I said, you know, just a f- few suggestions. You need a hook line. <laughs> you need something that people will remember when they're hearing it on the radio. And I said, also, I think you need to kind of tweak some of these lines because they're not, they kind of need a little reworking here. He goes, oh, yeah, yeah. So later he played it for me and it, it sounded good. And we, we cut that uh, for the fraternity or for the uh, counterpart label. It, it came out and it, 
it did some stuff around different places, uh, got on the WING chart up in Dayton and stuff like that. But Wayne and I started working on songs. I really wasn't into writing too much. We we did write some, and I had we had some things out that we co-wrote, but I kind of pushed Wayne to do it solo. He started writing more, and I kept giving him some input. One time he, I remember I was at my aunt's and he called me and said, Hey, I just wrote something really good. I said, you want to hear it? I said, yeah. He put the phone phone down. He played it with the guitar. And I said, that's the best thing you ever wrote called right or wrong. We got a soul group to do it. That came out on the fraternity label. And so he kept getting better. And so we kept going in the studio doing stuff. It has been the late, would be the late seventies and his material got better and better. And I kept pushing him saying, you know, you can, you're getting so good. You keep it going, keep it going. And he would, he started writing up, up the storm. And, um, so then, uh, I said to Wayne, look, here's the thing. If you want to make it, you're going to have to go to Nashville and live and write songs, forget producing records, doing anything, but writing songs. You got to focus on that. You got to go down here. I said, you can't live in Cincinnati and make it as a songwriter because there's no, there is no longer any uh, recording infrastructure here. It's all gone. And uh, so he went and he lasted about three months and he came back and he said, I just, you know, I didn't want to, he said, I want to come back and, and live here. And then a little while later, he tried it again. Then he came back and then he went for a third time and then it stuck. And he kept writing and struggling. And uh, I remember he'd call me at work and say, I just might as well give up. I said, you're too good to give up. I said, keep it going. Somebody's going to find your stuff. So he had a little, uh, he had a record or a song he did called uh, Your Old Flames Going Out Tonight. Somebody on Capitol, I believe, sang it, a country guy, and it got up to, I don't know, 50 or something on the country charts. And that's what got him going. And then after that, he, I said, you need to, you need to network down there. I didn't, you know, that word wasn't out yet, but I said, you you need to work with other guys because I had seen Troy Seals, who was also from around here and was blue-eyed soul guy. He went to Nashville, got into country, but he'd find other writers. And if he could find one or two others, they had contacts with publishers. And so you had three times or two times better chance of getting it recorded. So I told Wayne this and he said, you know, that is a good idea. I've been thinking of trying to do that. So he found some other guys, and they would, you know, different ones at different times. And so suddenly he's getting all the stuff out, and he had uh, his first big hit was uh, There Goes My Heart Again. I believe it was by the Forrester Sisters on Warner Brothers. I still got a record that he that he signed it to me, and, uh, and it was uh, his first big one. And after that, took off and kept getting the, the records out and uh, went country totally stopped the blue-eyed soul stuff but he he continued to record here and there and he came to me and he said i need a record out on my own and he said because that would get me some points here with publishers and this was before the big hit he said could you kind of reactivate your label i had one called general store records that i put some country stuff on i had had a i produced a record for a guy and it it got up on the on the national charts some but in the uh, 60s. So I reactivated General Store and I, I produced as a single producer, produced something by Wayne. And it, it made some of the independent uh, charts. But by then I really, I had enough push to get that other record up on Cashbox and different charts. By this time, 
things had kind of changed. Couldn't find the promoters to do it enough. And so, but it did get on a little bit on some of the charts. It got some good reviews called Jennifer. Then Wayne used that to take around to say, I got a label deal. And he got it uh, reviewed in Music Row magazine, and that got him a little publicity. So from there, he kept writing, and he, he did his, his big thing where he got all the all the hits. And uh, that's kind of how that, that came about. He helped me with musicians and to know who's good and what I should look for. I gave him the knowledge of the business I had learned and also about songs and how to how to tweak them a little bit to make them more commercial. And I had studied this quite a bit and he, he hadn't really got into that. But we gave each other the different things so we had a really good, uh, like a tennis match back and forth you know we just kept the ball going and it worked uh as, as a great thing but because we were good friends it, it made it fun and we always had that um, camaraderie um and stayed in touch well i would like the people to know everybody listening that wayne perry the kid from our local town that you produced did indeed go down to Nashville and on that third go round after hearing his own record what did you say it charted uh, like somebody else did it he wrote one and it charted at around 50 with a different singer singing that, it that was his first uh, song that he wrote as a um, as a songwriter a professional songwriter and not an artist but for a publisher down there and I forget the person that cut it but it was on Capital, which they is the Beatles. To, that was the Beatles record label. Uh, Capital, right. That's it. And it's called Your Own Flames Going Out Tonight. Wayne wrote it as, as a single uh, writer, and uh, it uh, was his first one that he actually got on the charts as a writer. I forget the guy's name that did it, but it got up to about 50. It was a good song. And from there, then he got the Forrester Sisters' big hit. And then from there, he had uh, different artists. He, he wrote, exploded, uh, didn't he? Yeah, I did. He had Laurie Morgan. And, oh, uh, let me tell the people what, what your friend and mine, Wayne Perry, did, if you don't mind. No. He did a song called Not a Moment Too Soon, That's recorded right. by Tim McGraw. That's right. That's he right. did a song called A Woman's Touch. Yep. Recorded by Toby Keith in yep. the year nineteen ninety-six. He did a song called I Only Miss You. It was in the 1996 motion picture called The Evening Star. Oh, yes. He did a record, a song called Every Promise I Ever Made, which was in the 2002 movie Desert Saints. And then he co-wrote... One of my favorites of everything that he's ever done. He co-wrote a song which I've always liked, and it was called "What Part of No." And that was by that, yeah. What part of No don't you understand? It was a number one record on the chart, and it was by Lori Morgan. Yeah. And then something happened in little Wayne Perry's career, and he said, you know, I'm going to switch over to pop, see what I can do. And he started writing for groups like the Backstreet Boys, which yep. I'm sure put more money in his pocket. Uh-huh. And Wayne Perry became a millionaire. How yeah, strange. He he did a lot of stuff. Here's Randy, we could go. It's an amazing story, Randy. Yeah, and thank you for one. being eloquent. 
Oh, you're welcome. I, I have a brief little story about that. What part of no don't you understand? Go, l- Wayne, tell us. Wayne would come home uh, to visit, and um, he'd always stop and, and see me. And um, he had uh, a real good sound system in his car. He said, well, come on out, and uh, I'll play you some stuff um, that I've written. So he popped uh, this... Uh, he, now, Lori Morgan hadn't gotten, uh, hadn't recorded what part of no yet. Um, so he pops that in there and I listened to it and I said, that's good. I said, I cracked up. I said, that's a good line. I said, where did you get that? He said, well, haven't you ever heard that before? Somebody said, and I said, no. He said, well, I was down uh, in this, I don't know, or somewhere in Nashville and somebody said something and the guy said to him, what part of no, don't you understand? He said, and it did rang a bell with me. And, um, he said, I sat down and I started writing it and came up with it. But that's <laughs> and I heard the the basic uh, demo of it before she ever cut it. That's just an amazing tale, Randy. We could go on for hours, but this, <laughs> this, and and a guy, I another musician I had on here a while ago. Yours are the two longest shows I've ever cut, and we <laughs> haven't even scratched the surface. Either one of I can get both of you back here, and we can do another hour and a half, and Probably still could. not tell it all. Oh, I have no <laughs> doubt. I have no doubt in my mind. Thank you. I finally have Randy on tape saying to the world what you did with your friendship with young Daryl Wayne Perry, who we used to call Little Wayne Perry, the vocalist in our hometown that would play down in the basement at the YWCA at Mrs. Huftel's open house, along with Roger Troutman and the human body, Roger and the human body, who later went on to Warner Brothers, and they became successful. Uh, We had all kinds of music in greater Cincinnati, and your finger was right on it, Randy. Congratulations. It's an amazing, amazing tale you just told. Well, I'll tell you what, at this time, everybody, I want to personally thank you. And Randy, at this time, I'm just going to have you say goodbye to the people because you've done a fabulous job relating your history and and everything. Just say goodbye, Randy. Goodbye, Randy. Everybody loved the story. They loved the true story you told, Randy. It's been a great, great time. Everyone, I really want to thank Randy McNutt. He's an excellent newspaper writer. He was a very good record producer obviously randy thank you again thank you at home everyone it's been fun but i've got to run we'll see you on the next one thank you rick thank you everybody thank you and as wayne would say hey all right keep it funky The preceding was a Rick Flynn production. This is your announcer, Chantal Marie speaking.